Now this morning, in keeping with the season, I would like to give a panoramic view of the events of what we have now come to call the Passion Week, referring, of course, to the seven days in the life of Christ leading up to his crucifixion and his glorious resurrection. These days, or this week, cannot actually be called the last or final days of Christ on earth. Because as you know, he lived and ministered to his disciples for 40 days following his resurrection. But yet there were some key pivotal points that occurred throughout this week. Each day was an important event in the life of Christ. Many significant events occurred during this time, which climaxed in his crucifixion as the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. Now, we look forward to that time, of course, and we look forward to that blessed resurrection day that we'll be celebrating in just a week. But today, the Sunday prior to his death, what we now call Palm Sunday, Jesus made what is now called his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Although when everything is considered, when all is said and done, it actually was anything other than a triumphal entry for Jesus Christ. Scripture tells us that in that Jesus waited in Bethany for the exact time to make his entrance and to present himself as the Messiah of Israel. And he presented himself at the exact time the lamb was being selected for the upcoming Passover and the exact time as predicted by Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, almost 500 years earlier. Some Bible scholars have calculated the exact date to be March the 30th, 33 AD, when Jesus made his triumphal entry. But of course, you remember that graphic scene that is depicted for us in the Gospels, that as Jesus made his way to Jerusalem and he overlooked the city, he cried, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if only you had recognized the day of your visitation, but now your city is left unto you desolate. He knew that he would be rejected as their king. Jesus knew that this would not be a really triumphant entry even before he reached Jerusalem. And the moment he came into view, he burst out into tears, as it were, and he wept over Jerusalem because they had missed their day of salvation. He also entered the exact time, I'm sorry, in the exact manner, not only the exact time, but he ex entered the exact manner that Zechariah predicted that he would enter Jerusalem when he said he would come riding on the colt, the male foal of a donkey. So this was a well-planned, orchestrated entry. This was not an ad hoc situation at all. This was planned hundreds of years before it actually occurred, showing that Jesus Christ was in control of all of these events. Satan was not in control, the Jews were not in control, the Romans were not in control, but God, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, the triune God was in control of everything that was happening. Now, the fact that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey portrayed him as a warrior king coming in peace rather than in war. 
If he had come for war, it would have probably been a white horse, a white charger, as they would say. Now, as he got into the city, all the folk, but many of the folk, began singing praises to him. They were singing hallelujah, which means praise the Lord, and hosanna, which means save us. It seems as though the people were under the impression that Jesus had come to liberate them, to give them physical salvation. Their focus was not on spiritual salvation at all, or seeing him as the real king. And so this Palm Sunday crowd falsely assumed that Jesus would bring political uh, freedom or liberation, but that was not true. He presented himself then both as the final Passover lamb and the Messiah. But he was officially rejected by the Jewish people from both aspects by the nation of Israel. So this first Palm Sunday was quite a pivotal day for our Lord Jesus Christ. It of course marked a fulfillment of prophecy that was made hundreds of years earlier, right to down to the very minute almost. According to some conservative scholars, in fact, it, right, it was right at the very minute that Jesus Christ presented himself. Now, this is an amazing thing then because it tells us something about the Word of God, doesn't it? The Word of God can be trusted. What God says he will do, he will do. We can trust his word. We must take his word for what it says. So he presented himself, but of course he was rejected. We'll see that uh, as we go on through the week as well. Uh, but most importantly, we must see here that God's purpose was fulfilled when Jesus Christ came into the uh, city of Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday. It actually, it was quite a sorrowful event for Jesus Christ because he said that the people missed the opportunity for peace or for salvation. And unfortunately, many people who observe Palm Sunday today miss that same opportunity. Jesus is presenting himself as their savior and they still reject him. They still let him go by. We trust that not, that will not be true of you today. But then we come now to Monday. What happened on Monday? Actually, he confirms Jesus, I'm sorry, he confirms the Jews' rejection of him as Messiah. As he returned to Jerusalem from Bethany, along the way, scriptures tell us that he cursed a fig tree that should have been bearing fruit at that particular time, but it did not. By the next day, on Tuesday, as we'll see, it had withered and died. This was a symbolic picture of the rejection of Jesus Christ as Messiah by the people of Israel. Sunday was a physical rejection, if you want, a one that you could see, a tangible rejection. Monday was a symbolic rejection of that. Let's read the scriptures in Mark 11. It says, on the next day, that's Monday, when they had departed from Bethany, he became hungry. And seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he entered and said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. 
And as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. And being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, behold, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. Now this is quite a memor- a, a, an event that needs to be remembered because it has far-reaching implication. This was a public announcement and pronouncement that Israel was being laid aside by God because of her rebellion against and disobedience to his word. Now, there's a little technical situation concerning whether the tree was supposed to bear fruit at that time or not, and why did Jesus say it was supposed to do, because some people say it was not. There's a little discussion we can go into here, but I don't want to get into that. But you can be sure Jesus didn't do anything wrong. Jesus would not say something in such a way, and it is not that way. According to the best uh, Bible scholars, Jesus could expect figs at that time of the year. But figs were not there. Representing the fact that Israel by this time should have been showing some fruit of righteousness in their lives because of the teaching of the prophets and also because of the fact that Jesus has just presented himself to them as a Messiah king, but they rejected it. So there was no fruit. And so Jesus cursed the fruit tree, cursed the fig tree, a symbol of his rejection of Israel. But the principle still holds today, my friends. God gives each of us, especially believers, a special gift that he's looking for returns. He's looking for fruit from the gifts he has given to us. And if we do not utilize those gifts to his glory to bring forth fruit, he could lay us aside. Jesus teaches about concerning the pruning in John 15. If we do not bear fruit, then the dead leaves, the dead limbs are cut off. That has nothing to do with going to hell or being assigned to a Christless eternity. It has to do with receiving of rewards. But if our lives are not in keeping with the word of God and not bearing the fruit that God wants us to bring, God lays us aside. He lays us aside. So we need to be sure we exercise the gifts that God has given to us and to utilize it for his glory. Amen? That was on Monday, another pivotal teaching moment in the last days of Jesus Christ. But something else happened as well. Jesus went into the temple, and he runs into the money changes at this time. In fact, he doesn't run into them. He runs out, run them out of, the, out of the temple. This is the second time he's done this now. He had done it three years earlier at the beginning of his ministry. He did the same thing. But he does it again at his ministry, and this time he seems to be having a holy wrath. Holy anger, if you want, in response, because they shouldn't have kept on doing what he had chastened them out of the temple three years for doing. And so his attitude toward these false, wicked, mere formalistic worship that has been portrayed by these men were condemned. See, what they were doing was that the people who were coming from other places to worship at the temple because you know, the Jews had to worship in this one temple. That's the only place they were supposed to worship. So they came from different territories. And when they came, they couldn't bring their animals for sacrifice with them most of the time, those who were living far. So they had to buy animals within the confines of the temple. And what was happening here, there was a racket going on between the priests and Ananias at that time. They were actually making money. They were charging more than they should 
for the purchase of alarms of exchange for foreign currency. There's a racket going on. And so they were actually preventing people from worshiping because of the desire for what we now call in the New Testament, filthy lucre, using the ministry to make money for yourself and not for the people of God or for the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus condemned that. He condemns it today. He condemns those in the ministry seeking filthy lucre, using the ministry as a means of benefiting themselves purposely at the expense of individuals. And Jesus condemned that because, in effect, they were interrupting and disturbing uh, the people's way of worship. And Jesus Christ was quite uh, angry about that. And we, as I said again, there's a righteous anger that he demonstrated. But that's another pivotal teaching he has for us. We have to be careful how we use the gifts that God has given to us. We have to be careful that we do not utilize them only for our personal benefit, just to make money for ourselves. Uh, and we should do nothing to prevent people from worshiping uh, the Lord Jesus Christ or the triune God. That's what we have on Monday. But now on Tuesday is quite an interesting time. This is a time when all of the enemies of Jesus Christ got together. The Herodians, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, all of them started to attack Jesus Christ. And he took them head on. He dialogued with them, he argued with them, and he put them to shame. And some of the best training you can have for knowing how to defend your faith is to study Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians at this particular time. He put all of them to stop. But he was very adamant, very angry against the hypocrites, those who claimed to be the people of God, but they were acting so ungodlike. That's the Pharisees, the Sadducees especially. And throughout the chapter, as you go throughout the book of what happened on Tuesday, you'll see that Jesus called the individuals, especially the Pharisees and Sadducees, uh, hypocrites and blind guides and so on. And eight times over, he pronounced woe upon them. Woe, 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 woe. I'm not counting, so I don't know if that's eight or not. <laughs> but for eight times, Jesus uh, shouted woe at these hypocrites because he was so angry with the way that they were living their life as believers or profess believers. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Jesus cries the same thing today to hypocrites. We have a lot of hypocrites today. Isn't that right? In fact, in one way or another, we are all hypocrites in some form or fashion. But Jesus detests hypocrisy in the life of believer. He wants us to live who we are, who we say we are. If we are Christians, then we should be Christ-like. If we are to be mature in the faith, if we claim his name, we have to be sure we are not using the name of Jesus in vain. If you call yourself a Christian and you are not glorifying his name but bringing disgrace to it, you are using his name in vain. And he doesn't want to do that. He will be saying, woe, woe to all of us who live hypocritical lives, who say one thing but live another way who say things in church, but when you get out 
to your business, to your school, in your neighborhood, you're different altogether. Altogether. I'll never forget, I always use this because it's an outstanding event in my life. I had a very close friend who had a very prominent position in a well-known business here in the United, here in the Bahamas. And I, I met, a, I had another friend to an, who goes to another church. And we were talking one day, and I started to talk about this gentleman, uh, very affluent, outstanding businessman, supposed to be a tremendous Christian. And I mentioned him. The fellow said, is he a Christian? He says, I have worked with him for over 10 years. And I didn't know he was a believer. Isn't that something? He had a tremendous reputation as a businessman. And Christians and the people in the church would call him a Christian businessman. But yet a person who was working with him for 10 years didn't know he was a Christian. Something is wrong there. Something is wrong there. Jesus condemns that sort of a lifestyle. He says, woe, woe to you. That's that's an act of condemnation. So this pivotal point in the life of Jesus then on Tuesday was to condemn hypocrisy and to caution us that we should not be such hypocrites. Leaders of the blind leaders, he would call those who are hypocrites, especially those who are in the position that I have as a pastor or an elder. If our lives are not in keeping with what we, be, what we proclaim, what we preach, Jesus condemned, condemns us if we live contrary to his word. But then, because of the way that Jesus met all of the accusations brought on by the Herodians, Pharisees, and Sadducees, and so on, they became even more determined to kill him. And so, the anger, the hatred against Jesus Christ begins to... Uh, increase as the week goes on. So when he comes to Wednesday, there's nothing recorded in scripture that Jesus did. So it seems that he rested that day. Seems that he had no activities at all. Probably he took that time to commute with his fathers as he anticipated the coming days, especially Friday. But he rested on that day. And perhaps that's a signal to us as well. Perhaps he's teaching us a lesson there. That even in the midst of, even in the midst of ministry, and even if it's becoming intense, even if it's become difficult, come aside, rest a while, commune with God, get the kind of strength that you need to face it. Don't run away from it, but commune with God and to get the kind of rest in him that we need. So he rested on that day. That was Wednesday. Now, Thursday evening, we come, of course, in the evening to what we call the Jewish Friday, beginning at 6 o'clock in the evening on Thursday. Scripture says, when the hour had come. When the hour had come. Now, you could look at this in two ways. When the hour had come for the Passover, or when the hour had come for him to do something at the Passover. I believe that's what he's talking about. Because I said, Jesus had a schedule. Everything was planned for Jesus Christ, his entire life, and especially these last seven days. I believe that every event and every one of these days were planned by the triune God. When the hour had come, this is, he goes to eat his last Passover with his disciples. And as you read the story, you'll find out that he reaches out to Judas one more time. He reaches out 
in Greece to Judas. This is when Judas refuses his overtures, of course, and Judas, Judas is, is uh, identified by Jesus Christ as the one who would betray him. And remember what he says to him, what you do, do quickly, because Jesus knew that the events were transpiring that would lead him to Calvary. What you will do, do quickly. So this is the night of his betrayal, a very pivotal time in the life of Jesus Christ. I want you to notice again, though, and this is important, Jesus is the one who is in control. Judas is not, the devil is not, the Romans are not, the Jews are not. Jesus is in control. His, his, it's his plan that is being worked out, not, being, not man's. Jesus was not the victim of circumstances. Please remember that. He was not the victim of circumstances. He was the master planner, planner carrying out the plan of the triune God made even before the beginning of the world. Jesus, I said, was in control. So he had the last supper with his disciples. But then he instituted the first Lord's Supper that he had with his disciples. And this happens after Judas leaves. After Judas leaves, Jesus Institute would be called now the Lord's Supper. And this is very significant because the gospel tells us this was also the inauguration of what? A new covenant. So this is a very important part, not only of the life of the Jewish people, but also for us as the people of God. When the old covenant is set aside, as it were, and the new covenant comes in to supersede it. He then goes on, as we read all of the chapters in the Gospels, to instruct the disciples concerning the coming of the Holy Spirit. This is in John 14, 15, and 16 especially. He talks about the coming of one just like him, the comforter. He says, I will send another comforter. They tell me that in the Greek, that word another means another of the same kind, not another of a different kind. So Jesus says, I'm going to send a comforter who is just like me. And he will come not to glorify himself, but to glorify Jesus Christ as well. But not only that, this comforter will be with them forever. Then he goes on to pray what we call today the real Lord's Prayer. In John 17, when he prays to his Father, his work is just about to be accomplished. He's glorifying the Father. He seeks now to have the same glory that he had with the Father before he came to earth. Tremendous prayer in John 17. But also this time, he teaches us humility. He takes a towel, wraps it around himself, and because the disciples, none of the disciples had taken the initiative to wash the feet of the other disciples, as was expected on that day, it appears that uh, servants should have been there, but they were not. It appears that the Jews were probably looking, another Jews, the disciples were probably looking for them. They're not around. So Jesus himself gets up and he washes the feet of his disciples, demonstrating humility that he came not to be served, but to serve. And after he did it, he says, what? Go and do likewise. That's a message to us today. Humility. There are some believers who actually uh, have time, just like the Lord's Supper, where they wash one another's feet. 
They they have made that an ordinance of the church. And that's a good reminder, really, to God's people of our position. We are not to be looking to be served, but rather to serve. Jesus taught that lesson to his disciples. All this happened now on this Thursday evening, the Jewish Friday. He has the prayer. Uh, he teaches them many things. Then they sang a, they sang a hymn. And then they go across the brook Kidron that enters the Garden of Gethsemane. Now this is where Jesus, this is all Friday evening now. Uh, he agonizes in prayer before the Father in anticipation of being separated from him as he suffers for the sin of mankind. He goes alone again with the Father. You, uh, I'm sure, are reminded of what happens in the Gospels. And alone, by himself, he struggles in agony, earnestly and desperately requesting with tears and strong crying that if possible, his Father would devise a means other than the cross to save mankind. He actually was looking for another way. That's difficult for some theologians to expect, looking at Jesus as the God-man. But that's what the scripture says. He's really looking for another way out, another way. That's why when we talk about Jesus being the only way, this is probably one of the most significant events you can go to to prove that there's no other way to God than through Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. His father said no to him. No other way. No other way for him. Three times he prayed that. My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And again, my father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Then it says again, he left them, meaning the disciples. He left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. This is what we'll be focusing on this coming Friday, which we call Good Friday. This is the anguish that Jesus Christ went through. Now, as you go through these passages, you'll find that this is probably one of the most revealing Places anywhere in the word of God that tells us about the emotions of Jesus Christ. That looks at him from a psychological point of view. It's an intense time. His body is being racked. Not because he's being beaten physically, but because of the pressure of what is he's looking at, what will happen to him on the cross of Calvary. And he cries out to his God. His entire body is being transformed, as it were, because of what... The anguish he's experiencing in his own mind, in his own soul, in his own spirit there in Gethsemane. And he's doing it all for you and for me. For you and for me. He's the only way. He's the only way we have to heaven, to God the Father. The only way. Because his death is the only death that the Father accepted as, a, as, a, as a, an acceptable substitute for our penalty, for our sin. is Jesus Christ. No other way. He is the only way. The book, Hebrews, the writer of the Hebrews puts it this way. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. Now here's the thing. And he was heard 
because of his piety, because of his holiness. He was heard. God heard and answered his prayer. But he didn't save him from death. He saved him through death. God always answers the prayer of his son, Jesus Christ. Always. You know, and I don't want to go into detail on this. Maybe we'll do it on Sunday. It's coming, I'm sorry, on Friday. Jesus cried on the cross, my God, my God, what? Why hast thou forsaken me? Now, many people say that means that God had, in fact, forsaken his son. But if you read the rest of that psalm, you'll find that that's not true. In fact, this tells it right here, that God heard him and delivered him. God did not forsake his son. Jesus felt forsaken, but he was not. God did not leave his son there all alone in that thought of a thing and say, I abandon you in this. No, no, no. Yes, he was exacting our punishment upon Jesus Christ. But God did not abandon him. It was any time, in fact, that his father was close to his son, it was on the cross. It was on the cross. Here, the point is that he's making here, as we go through this panoramic study quite quickly, is the fact that Jesus went through all of this pain and this agony for you and for me. Now, again, there's a big discussion as to whether or not it's the physical sufferings that affect our salvation or whether it's the suffering on the cross when he was supposedly separated from his father. Well, I do not believe that it is these physical sufferings that saved us. But nonetheless, it was a part of his experience that led to our salvation through his death and glorious resurrection. So three times over, he said, not my will, but thine be done. Then he goes out to face the hour for which he had come into the world. He came into the world to offer himself as a sacrifice. In fact, the writer of the book of Hebrews, remember, tells us that when Jesus Christ came into the world, he said, a body thou hast prepared for me. You were not pleased with animal sacrifices, the bodies of animals. But then he says, a body thou hast prepared for me. Significant. The body of Jesus Christ was divinely prepared by God the Father as a perfect sacrifice for you and for me. That's wonderful, isn't it? Prepared specifically for sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice. Jesus is facing that time now when that body that is prepared to be sacrificed would, in fact, be sacrificed. And remember that Paul says in the book of Romans, he did not withhold his son, but what? Offered him up. That's a term of sacrifice. He did not withhold his son but offered him up as a sacrifice for us. Now remember the story of Abram and Isaac. And Abram, Abram was ready to kill his son. The father spared his son. But he didn't spare his own son. Because he was going to experience the penalty for your sin and for my sin. Jesus knew no sin. Jesus did not die for his own sin. He had no sin. He died for you and for me. That's where substitution comes in. As I have said hundreds of times here, I say again, it's no use for us to say Jesus died and to think that that's going to save me because I believe that Jesus died. No, no, no. You must believe that he died for you. He died in your place. He died instead of you. He died in your room. 
He died not only for you, but he died also as you. That's a teaching that we'll talk about when we come about the victorious life. Jesus died not only for you, but he also died as you. So I want you to focus on this moment then, right now, as we go through this panoramic view of the last week in Jesus' life. Jesus, alone in the garden, anticipating Calvary and taking your place and my place on Calvary's hill. I want you to think about that for a moment and thank God and praise God as we sing a hymn now, My Savior's Love. For me it was in the garden He prayed not my will but thine He had no tears for his own griefs But sweat drops of blood for mine How marvelous, how wonderful and my song Now, it's still early on Friday morning. Jesus had no sleep that night at all. That's why what we'll be talking about now makes his experiences even much more difficult. Judas betrays him with a kiss in the garden. His disciples desert him, although just previously saying that they will never do so. But they desert him. They leave him all alone to face his enemies. And this is what he says to his enemies in Luke 22:53. This is your hour and the hour of the power of darkness. These are chilling words. This is your hour and the hour of the power of darkness. So the most saying is your time at bat. It's your time at bat. But he's implying, I think, my time is coming also. But it's your time right now. This is your hour and the hour of the power of darkness. You have to remember that from the very moment that Jesus was prophesied to come into the earth, he was also, was also prophesied that he'd be fighting with the devil, the seed of the devil. So many things are in play here that if we had time to go into to see how cosmic this experience is that Jesus is going through right now. This isn't just a mere uh, prisoner that is being uh, imprisoned by the Rome or by Jewish people. This is a cosmic activity here. All of the powers of darkness are at play here. 
as well, of course, the power of the righteous. Jesus is then taken from the garden before Ananias, the high priest, who at that time really was just a proxy for the Roman government. He was really there for his own benefit. He was placed there as a political thing, not really as a religious one. But he goes and he's before Ananias and he faces an informal religious trial before this ex-high priest, Ananias. He is physically accosted for the first time. A palace guard strikes Jesus in the face. Now this doesn't just mean a little slap here. These men were trained to impose pain upon their prisoners. So when they struck Jesus Christ, this was a crushing blow. He is then taken before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin and given a formal but illegal trial. It's in the wrong place at the wrong time. There's no place to make this kind of a trial. This was not the time for it either. But Ananias and the Sanhedrin did it nonetheless. It is still before dawn on Friday. Still before dawn, our Friday. He begins to be mocked by his captors at this point. They say, if you are the Messiah, tell us who struck you. Tell us who struck you. So they are mocking him now. But it also goes to tell us that they heard his message. They did hear his claim that he was the Messiah. They did hear that. Now it's just about dawn on Friday. And the scripture tells us that Peter denies him three times. Three times. Peter denies him. The determined Jews then take Jesus back from the house of Caiaphas to the precincts of the temple where the charge of blasphemy is officially confirmed by the seven members of the Sanhedrin. The judges themselves become the witness. It's an amazing thing you see what's happening. The judges become the witness against Christ. But their judgment does not carry the death sentence under the Roman law to which they were bound. So as much as they detested it, they must take Jesus before Pilate if they wanted Jesus to be killed, to go through the uh, what we call the uh, capital punishment of, this, of the town at that time. Because capital punishment could only be approved by the Roman governor. Jesus, then I say, is falsely accused of blasphemy by the Jews. It's at this point that violence against Jesus is dramatically increased. Some spit on him, spit in his face. Some punch him in the body, while still others slap him in the face. Now, this is going on on an ongoing basis. And any and everybody is doing it. It's not just the guards now, but even the crowds of people are doing it. Um, you know, the scripture tells us in Isaiah that his face was so marred that it couldn't be recognized. This probably is when it occurred right here because of the beatings that Jesus Christ received from the people. His face became unrecognizable. I'm sure that some of you have seen the movie The Passion, right? And some people look at that and say, that was so gross. Why did people show him like that? That's probably very close to how it happened. Jesus was beaten without mercy. 
he was punched and kicked and just about everything imaginable to him. And this is probably the time where the scripture was fulfilled that his, he was disfigured and he could not be recognized. Literally, he was beaten to a pulp. But now it is at this time, according to Matthew 27, that Jesus, in remorse, commits suicide. And, but he gives the first of ten declarations of Jesus' innocence given during this Friday morning. There are ten times the scripture records individuals saying that Jesus was innocent. Ten. This is the first one, and was made by the one who betrayed him, Judas, in Matthew 27, 4. He says, I have betrayed innocent blood. Pilate, at this point now, he wanted to disassociate himself from the situation because his wife is even getting into the picture, telling him, wipe your hands of this, don't get involved in this at all. But Pilate sends them before Herod, who is in charge of Galilee, Herod the Tetrarch, because uh, he was the one who was from Jesus' hometown. He was in charge of Galilee. Pilate examines him on the basis of treason. And for the first time, Pilate himself personally declares that Jesus Christ is innocent. He says, I find no crime in him. Second time now, Jesus is declared to be innocent. But then it goes on. Jesus is marked as king for a day. They put a crown of thorns on his brow. And these are not just little prickles, we call about. These were, this was a thorn bush with, some say as high as anywhere from two to three inches long with these spikes. And they were forced down on his skull. But Herod also finds Jesus not guilty. And he declares him an innocent man. This is the third time that Jesus is declared to be innocent. But Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate. It's now about 8 a.m. on Friday. Pilate personally declares Jesus' innocence for a second and a third time, according to Luke chapter 23, verses 14 and 15. And so up to this point, this makes five times in all during the ordeal that Jesus Christ is declared innocent by his enemies. Then Pilate's wife comes in, and she also declares Jesus innocent, making it six times up to this point. But Pilate then scourges Jesus and attempts to free him by offering Barabbas to be crucified. Jesus is scourged with steel-tipped leather tongs, and a crown of thorns is viciously and violently forced upon his head, biting into his temple and his brow. Now, the Bible does not state specifically how many times Jesus was scourged. Mel Gibson in the Passion says it was 78 times. But Paul says in another passage that it was 40 times less one, 30 ta 39 times. So Jesus was whipped, he was scourged without mercy. And again, I don't want to go into the whole description of the kind of whip that was used, the scourge, but it tore away his flesh. Tore away his flesh. And Jesus bore it all. But he is mocked and he's beaten by the soldiers. Bleeding and just about, just barely conscious, Pilate presents him to the crowd and says, Echo homo, behold the man. Behold the man. And for the fourth time, 
Pilate personally declares that Jesus is innocent. He says, I find no crime in him. And he shouts at the people. This is the seventh time that Jesus was declared innocent by his enemies. When Pilate presents Barabbas to the crowd and asks, Whom shall I release unto you? Egged on by the scribes and the Pharisees, they shouted, Barabbas, Barabbas. They wanted Barabbas to be released rather than Jesus Christ. But then Pilate asks a question. What then shall I do with Jesus, which is called the Christ? Now, I don't want you to skip over that too quickly today. If I was an evangelist preaching, I'd be shouting and hollering at you right now. I really would. But I want you to get this. This question is being asked of the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit of you right now. What then shall you do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? Is he your Savior yet? Have you received him as your savior? Or will you pass him by again? What then shall you do with Jesus who is called Christ? Some of the same crowd now who shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They are now shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And then these folks say, makes one of the most amazing, most of the, heart-chilling statements you can read anywhere in the scripture. They said, his blood be on our hands and on our children. His blood be on our hands and on our children. So Pilate reluctantly yields to the demands of the crowd. He symbolically washes his hands of the matter. And for the fifth time, he personally declares the innocence of Jesus. This is what he says again. Verse Matthew 27, verse 24. I am innocent of the blood of this righteous man. I am innocent of the blood of this righteous man. But of course, that did not cleanse him of his guilt in the least. One evangelist likes to really, you know, sensualize things. He says, Pilate is in hell right now. And he's seen wringing his hands and washing it. And all he's saying is, is it off? Am I okay? He just keeps washing his hands over and over in hell. And of course, we have no, we cannot say that it's true. But I can just imagine what he is experiencing now because he did not let Jesus go when he had the chance. Of course, that's from a human point of view. From a divine point of view, he could not do it because of the plan that God himself had for Jesus, right? But Jesus is mocked and beaten by the soldiers again as they lead him away to be crucified along the Via Doloroso. Simon of Cyrene is forced to help Jesus carry his cross up the hill that led to Golgotha. It's just about 9 a.m. now on Friday morning. And I want you to see Jesus carrying this cross. This wasn't a light cross. This was a heavy piece of wood. Some says it was two pieces of wood. Some says only one. We won't go through all of that right now. But it was heavy nonetheless. He could not carry that cross and live to go up with God's hill. That's why Simon is accosted and made to do that job. Now, we want you to focus again then on Jesus Christ. As he goes up the hill, as he goes via Dolorosa up the hill to Calvary, carrying the cross 
that he will die for you and for me. Listen now as B. Fowler comes to sing Via Dolorosa.
On the top of Golgotha on Calvary, Jesus is spread out eagle-like on the wooden cross. Giant spikes are cruelly but very expertly driven into his hands and feet. On the cross, Jesus refuses a mixture of a drink that contains something similar to what we call narcotics today. It was meant to help to deaden the pain that he was experiencing. But the scripture tells us that Jesus tasted death for every man. He wanted, he had to taste death in all of its fullness for all mankind. So he refused this drink that would deaden the pain. But now two other times Jesus was declared innocent by those involved in his crucifixion. The thief on the cross said, he has done nothing wrong. And the centurion in charge of the soldiers who crucified Jesus said, surely this man was the son of God. So 10 times in all, Jesus was declared to be an innocent man, but still he was crucified. Now you would say that's incredible, isn't it? How could they crucify Jesus with so many people declaring him innocent so many times? How could they condemn and crucify Jesus with so much evidence substantiating his evidence? How could they still bring in a guilty verdict against Jesus Christ? But let me ask you a question right now, especially to those of you who have not yet accepted Jesus Christ as your savior. What is your verdict concerning Jesus Christ? How many times have you heard the gospel, but yet you've said no to him? How many times have you come to the conclusion that Jesus did die for the sins of the world, but yet you have rejected him as your savior on a personal basis and have not yet said that he died for my sins? Listen, friends, each time you have rejected Christ, you have found him guilty in spite of the evidence. And like the people of Jesus' day, his blood is really on your hands and perhaps also on the hands of your children. The writer of the book of Hebrews said that for his hearers to know about Christ and then they turn their backs on him was to trample underfoot the blood of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you something in a, as lovingly as I can. Is this what you are doing when you reject Christ? time and time again, trampling his blood underfoot. Saying it doesn't matter to you. Just to say that Jesus died, that isn't enough. You have to come to the point and the conviction by the Spirit of God that he died for you, he died in your place. So as we anticipate and contemplate Good Friday, I ask you this question again. Did Jesus die for you? or not? Did he die for you or not? And so the same question that Pilate asked over 2,000 years ago is being asked again today to you personally, not by me, I trust alone, but by the Spirit of God. What will you do with Jesus? Paul said that the gospel was like an aroma of death to some and an aroma of life to others. That's why it has to be preached accurately. In other words, it's death to those who reject Christ and life to those who accept him. And so I ask you this morning, what is the gospel to you this morning? What is your verdict concerning Jesus Christ? 
Will you join the crowd of 2,000 years ago during that first Passion Week and say, away with him, away with him, we will, have, we will not have this man to rule over us? Or will you open your heart and will you say to Jesus Christ that I believe and I now receive you as my Savior and I will take you into my life as such? What is your word, I ask again? What will you do with Jesus Christ? He died for you, my friends. He died for you. He died in your place. He died as a substitute because of the fact that we were all sinners and we could not pay the price for our salvation. The Holy Spirit is asking, what then will you do with Jesus who is called the Christ? I repeat, what is your verdict concerning Jesus Christ? Pilate asked the crowd, what will I then do with Jesus? We're asking you this morning, what will you do with Jesus? Jesus is offering himself once again to you as your savior. Will you find some fault in him and reject him? Or will you receive him as your savior? I ask you, what will your answer be? Please bow with me in a word of prayer. Take a few moments of quiet reflection. If you have not yet received Christ and the Spirit of God has been speaking to you through, this, through his word and his message today, and you have received him as a result, you have received him simply by placing faith in, your, in Jesus Christ, trusting him as your Savior. And you can do that right now. Right where you are, just where you're seated. You don't have to sing a hymn. You don't have to pray a prayer. You just have to let Jesus know that you believe that he died for you. He rose again and that you are now placing your faith in him as your savior. Take a few moments and do that right now. We're going to sing our closing hymn. And as that closing hymn is sung, if you have received Jesus Christ, or you really would like to someone to talk to you more about it, I'd like for you to make a commitment now that you'll come to see me or one of the other pastors here so we can help you along with that. But I want to make it clear that you receive Christ simply by placing your faith in him. That's all you need to do. Anton is coming to lead us now with our closing hymn, and we trust that you will place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Stanza two. Jesus is standing on trial still. You can be false to him if you Faithful through good or ill, what will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? Neutral you cannot be. Someday your heart will be as 
Yeah. 